All right, check. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like the boom of the mic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're, uh, we're glad to be with you all. Um, my wife, Carrie, and our four kiddos, uh, we love coming up here uh, and being with the table and really enjoy being with you. And I'm uh, excited to look at Psalm 95 with you this morning. Um, yeah, as I talked to Brad and Bryce about the uh, sermon series that you guys are doing, thinking about uh, these psalms that sort of uh, lay out for us uh, kind of the kingship qualities of God. Um, what I want us to hang on to this morning with Psalm 95 is that Psalm 95 is actually leading us into the rest of the king, okay? Uh, so Psalm 95 is leading us into the, into the rest of the king. But I want to begin this morning by uh, asking you a question. Um, when you hear the word anxious, what comes to your mind? Uh, maybe me just asking that question makes you anxious. <laughs> it makes me uh, a little bit anxious. Um, in September of 2021, uh, Bath University in England published a study that they did, a survey that they did, where they asked um, around the world, um, people ages 16 to 25, how they felt about the future of our environment here on planet Earth. And what that survey sort of uh, revealed with these thousands of people across the world was that 60% of young people said that they feel very worried uh, about the environment. 45% uh, of those people who were surveyed said that, that worrying about the environment actually affects their daily life. 75% of those people said that they felt like their future was frightening. 56% of those people said they felt like humanity is doomed. And 66% of the people that were surveyed, 16 to 25, expressed having fear, anger, despair, being sad, and afraid for what this world is going to be like in their lifetime. Uh, we turn on the news, and the news cycle uh, tells us of the hundredth day of the war in Ukraine, um, and we see stuff going on there. We turn on the news, and we see things happen in Uvalde, Texas. Terrible, tragic things. Buffalo, New York. Racially motivated hate crimes. I think about my own life. Um, I moved from North Carolina a little over a year ago, and shortly after we moved here, I found out that my best friend and the pastor that I worked with for seven years was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer. Um, and he had surgery, and he had chemotherapy, and, and everything was looking great, looking up. Um, and he just had his six-month scans uh, after his surgery and everything, and they found cancer on his lung now, too. I think about my own kids. I think uh, I, I, I'm anxious about their now, <laughs> and I'm anxious about their future. And, and, and all this really points us to is, like, our starting spot is anxiety. Like, that's, that, that, that's where we're at right now. And we live in a world that's riddled with anxiety, and every single one of us in here is very familiar uh, with feelings of anxiety. And what Psalm 95 gets us into this morning, what Psalm 95 shows us is what our anxious world and our anxious hearts really need. And what we really need is to get into the rest of King Jesus 
That's what we really, really need is to get into the rest of King Jesus. So hang on to that. That's the ultimate point of this message is that, is that we as a people and our world needs to get into the rest of King Jesus. And we're going to get there with three ideas this morning. The first idea is glory. The second idea is salvation. And then the third idea is invitation. So let's start with glory. That's a word that's we don't often hear, it's not like actual, like everyday language that we use, but here's how I want us to think about glory. Think about glory this way, everything the way that it's supposed to be. Everything the way that it's supposed to be. Kids, it's when you get out of school for the summer, and you know that feeling, right? Parents, it, it, it's when you, when you hold that child for the first time. And everything is just just right. It's a dinner with friends where you don't want to leave. And the wine keeps flowing and the conversation keeps flowing. And you're sitting there at the table and nobody wants to go home. It's a hike up to Long's Peak and looking down at the vastness of everything. It's the world the way that it's supposed to be. And all of those things are reflections of God's glory. And Psalm 95 tells us that God's glory is actually rooted in God's acts of creation. If we look back at verses 4 through 6, here's some of the stuff that we see about God's glory in his acts of creation. Verse 4 tells us that this world is held in his hands, that the depths of the sea and the heights of the mountains are in the hands of this rock of our salvation, of this God. That everything fits into his hands. He's so vast. He's so, so, so big. Verse 5 shows us that not only does God hold everything, but he actually forms it. He actually shapes it. God actually makes this world the way that he wants it, the way that it is supposed to be. That's how this world is supposed to be. It's it's hand-held. It's hand-shaped by God. And then in verse 7, verse 7, we see... That we, as humanity, as people, we too are held and formed by this God who speaks everything into existence, who makes everything the way that it's supposed to be. Psalm 95 tells us that we are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture, that he is our shepherd, that he guides us, he protects us, he cares for us. We're shaped and held by God. One pastor looking at Psalm 95 put it this way. He said, we and this universe are handheld and hand-shaped by our creator. And what that does is it actually orients us. It points us to the rest that God gives. It reminds us that there was a time when things were the way that they were supposed to be. That that was an actual reality here on this earth, here for humanity. That those feelings that we get when we hold our child for the first time, when we're hanging out with our friends at dinner, when we're on that hike, when, we're, when everything is so big and so beyond us and so much bigger than us, and, and we realize and recognize that we are so small, and it's this overwhelming feeling, but it doesn't move us towards anxiety. It actually moves us towards rest. The glory of God that we see in Psalm 95 shows us that, 
shows us that we are made for, we are meant for the rest that God provides. That there really was a time when there was no Uvalde, when there was no buffalo, when there was no cancer. And though we get glimpses and shadows of these things now, God's word is also honest about our situation the way that it is, too. It's honest about the reality that there was a time when everything was the way that it was supposed to be, and it's also honest with us about the reality that the world that we live in is not the way that it's supposed to be. That it's marred, it's broken, it's messed up. That the moments of glory pass. That the children that we once held so dearly, we find ourselves being very harsh towards them. And unkind and not helpful. And tearing them down instead of building them up. That those friends that we have dinner with, we find ourselves gossiping behind their backs. That we hear about people who are on the hike at Long's Peak and they get lost. And you can imagine the anxiety and the terror of being lost in the wilderness. That cancer is here. It's real. That Uvalde and Buffalo are real as well, too. The world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And that actually leads us to the second thing that we see in Psalm 95 that leads us into rest, and that's salvation. Salvation. Verse 1, it's an invitation of what we've already been doing this morning, to come and to sing praises, to sing to the Lord, to make a joyful noise, this invitation to come and to worship God, who is the rock of our salvation. Verse 1 immediately begins with this assumption that things are not like they once were. That things are not the way that they're supposed to be. That our hearts are not restful hearts. That we actually need this deep, soul-satisfying rest that consumes the anxiety that we live out of and the anxiety that we live by. And in verse 3, we see that that rest is found in a great God, in a great King, in the rock of our salvation, as verse 1 says. It's this incredible declaration that we get in these verses in Psalm 95, that salvation is needed and salvation is found. Salvation is actually in God, who's like a rock. He's steady, immovable, unchangeable, only good, only glorious. That that rock of our salvation is a great God. And it's great in this like biggest and best possible sense that we can imagine. It carries with it this idea of being remembered. We all want to be remembered. We all love to be remembered. We have a God who is remembered. He is the great God in the biggest, best possible sense. You know, the way we kind of talk about that currently today is this idea of the goat, the greatest of all time. God is remembered. He's a great God. He's not just a great God. He's a great king as well. And that carries with it these, the, these ideas of, uh, of that he rules over us. That we're actually made to submit to him and to his authority and his rule because he has our best in mind. But it's not only rule, it's care. It's gentle. It's kind. It's loving. He provides for us. He protects us as a king. He is utterly 100% committed to our flourishing. 
He is committed to the flourishing of the world that he made and the flourishing of the humanity that he created. He is the rock of our salvation. And these declarations that we see here in these three verses, they have historical roots to them. They're not just pulled out of thin air. There's a historical rootedness to these declarations because this God that, that the psalmist who's writing Psalm 95 is talking about is a God who rescued a people from slavery and bondage and oppression in Egypt. God's people, the Israelites, were living as enslaved people, oppressed by the Egyptian king, by Pharaoh. Life was not the way that it was supposed to be. They needed salvation. They needed to be rescued, and that's exactly what God did. God rescued his people. He saved them. He brought them out of slavery and bondage and oppression and was bringing them into a land that he was preparing for them. And he brought them out miraculously and did incredibly miraculous things like part the Red Sea where they walked through on dry ground. He provided water from a rock to them. He provided manna in the morning that just grew up on the ground. He fed them. He gave them water. He gave them sustenance. He was giving them life. He was rescuing them. He was saving them from a, a life in a world that was not the way that it was supposed to be. But what's interesting is as we read through that account, which is recorded for us in the book of Exodus, that it doesn't take long for God's people to regret that God saved them, to regret that God rescued them, and to begin complaining about the water from the rock that he was providing, about the manna that he was providing, and even began to say, we wish that we were back in Egypt. We wish we were actually back in a situation where we were in slavery and bondage and oppression. And so not only is the world not the way that it's supposed to be, our hearts are not the way they're supposed to be. Our hearts are broken. They're messed up. The Bible calls that sin. And sin is when everything is twisted. When our relationships with one another are twisted. When our relationship to God is twisted. Our hearts are not the way they're supposed to be. Our hearts actually need the salvation and the rescue that God had provided the people of Israel in Egypt. We actually need that for our own hearts, for our own lives. You see, what Israel was really interested in, they were more interested in a God of quick fixes than they were a God of deep soul satisfaction, of rest and relationship with him. They just wanted the next quick thing that could get them what they wanted, what they desired. They were interested in a quick fix God, not a God of relationship and rest. That's a God of process and brings us along in love and grace and mercy and care. And if I'm honest, I'm a lot like Israel. I would prefer a God of quick fixes. I would prefer a God who would just rubber stamp my wants, my plans, my desires. I would prefer a God who just tells me how everyone else is wrong and I'm right. Doesn't that sound good? How about you? Do you just wish that God would just 
tell you, oh, that person's terrible, that person's wrong, that person's never right, and you always are. You're awesome. That's the kind of God that I find myself wanting oftentimes. And the reality is, is what that is, is, is living out of the anxiety <laughs> that we've already talked about. Living out of fear. And honestly, it's a fear that God would actually show me my heart is not the way that it's supposed to be. That God would actually enter into my life and say, hey, you're not as great as you think you are. I live out of fear that God would actually show me things that I don't want to see. That I would rather not lay my eyes on. That God might actually show me that I'm incredibly prideful. That oftentimes I wish that my marriage with Carrie was just her figuring out that I'm actually right about everything. And if she could just get on board, like, we would all be great. Or, or that my kids would see that dad is always and only wise. And he's always and only patient. And he never is reactionary. They're the ones with the problem. What I want is an arrangement, not a relationship. What I want is a quick fix, not a relationship. And that God might actually show me the pride in my heart that I really don't want to see. And that even extends to how I interact with and, and relate with friends and people because I'll, I'll sort of hold myself off. I, I don't want to be vulnerable with, with other people because God might then actually use those people to show me things that I don't want to see might actually use them in my life to say, hey, do you realize actually how harsh that was towards your children? Hey, do you, do you realize how much you cut Carrie's self-confidence oftentimes with the way that you interact with her? I don't want that. I don't want to hear those things. I'm a lot like Israel. I just want a quick fix to where everyone will see that I actually have the best vision for life, not God, rather than a God of relationship who enters in and says, hey, you're kind of messed up, you're broken, your heart's not the way that it's supposed to be. We actually need salvation. We, we need the rescue that is offered in this God that we read about here in Psalm 95. And that actually leads us to our third idea this morning. And it's the idea of, uh, of invitation. What's interesting is that if we look at verse 8, we see this very God that the, the writer proclaims about who is great, who is awesome, who's a king, who's the rock of our salvation, who holds everything and he forms and he shapes and he fashions everything. In verse 8, that very God actually speaks into the psalm itself. In verse 8, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear the voice of this God, this rock of your salvation, do not harden your hearts. That's the invitation. The invitation is don't harden your heart to this great God. It's an invitation to enter into this God's rest, but it's an invitation that's a plea. Don't reject this God. Don't turn your back on him. Don't harden your heart as his, as his people did at Meribah and Massah. Which those words, you can actually 
uh, literally translate as test and dispute. Also rooted in a historical reality of when God's people were wandering in the wilderness. And they tested God. They disputed God. They disputed his faithfulness. They disputed his acts of salvation. They disputed his greatness. God had always and only been nothing but faithful to his people. Nothing but saving and rescuing and giving them new life. And yet they questioned him every single step of the way. And God steps into this psalm right here and he says, don't harden your hearts in that way. Don't harden your heart toward me. If you harden your heart toward me, verse 11 says, you actually won't enter my rest. You actually won't enter my rest if you harden your heart toward me, if you reject me. And this this invitation, it's actually a gracious invitation. It's rooted in, in God's grace. And that word grace is this idea of a, a free gift. Something that, that, that Israel did not like merit. They didn't work for it. God utterly rescued them by his grace. And his grace carries him into this invitation to say to you and to me and to the rest of these people, do not harden your heart toward me. This is the free gift that I have. It is your salvation. It is my rest that I have. At the beginning, remember I said that Psalm 95 is actually all about leading us into the rest of King Jesus. You see, in in order to understand Psalm 95, we actually can't stop at Psalm 95. We actually have to fix our eyes on Jesus. This is kind of my my last point here, so if you've got questions that you want to text in or anything like that, um, feel free to go ahead and be doing that. But in order to understand Psalm 95, we actually have to move beyond Psalm 95, and we have to get into Jesus. There's a book in the New Testament called the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews actually gives us commentary on this very psalm. And specifically on verses 8 through 11 in this psalm, where God pleads not to harden your heart. And if you do, you won't enter into my rest. And ultimately, what the writer of Hebrews is showing us is that the rest that is being talked about in Psalm 95 is only found in Jesus. You see, Psalm 95 is ultimately leading us to the rest that King Jesus and only King Jesus can provide. We can't miss that. If we miss that, we actually miss the purpose of Psalm 95, ultimately. You see, because all of the declarations that are made about God in Psalm 95, they are true in Jesus. Salvation, glory, a great God, a great King, our Maker. Jesus holds us. Jesus shapes us. Jesus shows us life the way that it is supposed to be. Jesus sees us and he shows us that we are not the way that we're supposed to be. That we are a people who are tempted to harden our hearts. That we are a people who are tempted to be defined by our anxiety and defined by our fear and not defined by the rest that he gives us. That we are a people who are tempted to quick fixes instead of a deep relationship of rest 
with God. That means he's going to grow us and mature us and bring us along and make us a people who are more gracious, who are more merciful, who look more and more and more like Jesus, our King. God's word is refreshingly honest with us. We are tempted to a life of anxiety. We are tempted to a life of quick fixes. We are tempted to harden our hearts towards God. And what we have in Jesus is a Savior who is tempted in all of those same ways. In all of those same ways, Jesus was tempted as we are. But instead of caving to the anxiety, instead of caving to a hardness of heart, instead of caving to a quick fix, Jesus lived faithfully. In Matthew chapter 4, towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus go out into the wilderness to fast and to be with his Father, to be with God, much like Israel went into the wilderness. And Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness as he was fasting. Satan came to him and said, Jesus, you're hungry. You want to eat something? And you're powerful, so just turn those stones over there into bread and be done with it. And then bow down to me, Jesus. Give me your heart, and I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus responded and said, You don't know me. My life is all about worshiping and serving my Father. About God only. He is the provider. He is the protector. Jesus was offered a quick fix. But instead, he chose rest in God. Or how about just before Jesus went to the cross, and he was in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was praying to his Father. And in that moment, we see Jesus tempted to let the cross pass him by. And he even expresses, Father, if there's any other way than this, please let that be. But not my will, yours. Not my will, Father, your will. You see, what Jesus did is instead of choosing the quick fix, he chose the cross. And he chose it for you and for me. He chose it for us to free us from a life defined by anxiety, to free us from a quick fix life, to free us from the hardness of our hearts, and to invite us to enter into the rest that he has purchased in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. To invite us into a relationship with him. And in order to get into a relationship with Jesus, in order to get into the rest of King Jesus, we have to go to the cross. We have to find the rest that the Savior provides. And that takes our hearts that are not the way that they're supposed to be and gives us hearts that rest in what He has done. Rest in His finished work. And it's all by grace. It's a free gift. You and I can't do anything to get there. God, because of how much he loves us, he gives us Jesus. And Jesus, because of how much he loves us, he goes to the cross for us to lay down his life for us, that we would have life and we would have it abundantly. 
And it's even more than that. He promises that he's actually going to grow us and mature us too by this very same grace, by this very same free gift, that he's going to take our lives that are bent toward anxiety and he's going to remind us of the bigger picture of the rest that he has purchased. He's going to take all of the situations in our lives that move us toward anxiety and he's going to remind us that he is redeeming all things. And he is even redeeming creation itself. That one day Uvalde will be undone. That one day Buffalo will be undone. That one day cancer will be no more. And we will have nothing but life and life with him. Jesus offers us the free gift of salvation that he gives us. And what he ultimately says is he says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are heavy, all you who are burdened, all you who are anxious, all you who are stressed. And what I will do is I will give you rest. I'll give you rest in me. So let's take a look at some of these uh, questions we have here. All right. By the way, I really enjoyed answering the questions last time I was here. So let's see. Okay, yeah, it's really good. So when we are called into a life of rest, how do we balance that with the action we're called to in order to bring and build the kingdom here uh, and now? Yeah, so that, that's a really good question. Um, rest uh, in the Bible in a big picture sense, like categorically speaking, um, is, is oftentimes actually action-oriented. It's movement-oriented. So like Psalm 95 here, the rest that we're being invited to, what it includes is us bringing songs of praise and worship and thanksgiving. We're actually speaking it. We're actually doing it um, uh, together. So when the Bible talks about rest, it's not necessarily talking about, um, let's say, you know, for me, it's sitting and watching documentaries, you know, in my, in my bed. Um, it's actually a, 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 a movement. It's actually uh, action-oriented around this idea. So to the second part of it, called in order to bring, um, to bring and build the kingdom here, uh, here and now. Um, Jesus is the one who's actually doing that. You and I are not bringing the kingdom. Jesus is bringing the kingdom, and what he has done is he is inviting us to come alongside of how he is already at work in everything in every conceivable way in our lives. So what bringing the kingdom uh, actually looks like is, um, there's an author who wrote this, I can't even remember the name of it. It, looks, it actually looks like ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. It's the everyday plod of, uh, of life. It's being, uh, it's being a, a faithful husband, a faithful wife, a faithful mother, a faithful father. It's being faithful in our work that God has called us to, our, our vocations, and recognizing that God is actually building his kingdom through those mundane things, that God is, is the one who is at work, and we're coming alongside uh, of Jesus. And what the Bible actually promises us is that as we have that orientation about life and that posture about life, what God does is he actually works his rest into us. Because we begin to more and more and more rest in the reality that this whole thing is not up to us. 
that God's the one who is, uh, who's doing it. I hope that's helpful. When you say one day Uvalde will be undone, can you clarify uh, what you mean? Yeah, so towards the, the, the end of the Bible, um, in Revelation chapter 21 actually, uh, what the book of Revelation pictures is, uh, is Jesus actually coming again a second time. And when he comes again, what he does is he brings heaven down to earth and he unites, he reunites heaven and earth. And heaven and earth are one again, and God is dwelling with his people um, here. And in that picture that we, that, that we see in the book of Revelation, and particularly in Revelation 21, uh, one of the things that we see in Revelation 21 is that actually the tears are wiped away from our eyes. And there is no more mourning, there is no more death, there is no more sin. So in this, in this very mysterious way that we can't, like right here and right now, fully wrap our minds around, in Jesus' second coming, all of the bad that has ever been done will be undone in him. And I think that part of the reason we have a hard time wrapping our mind around that is because we have a hard time imagining a world in which that stuff just doesn't doesn't exist. But that's actually the promise that we get at the culmination of history, at the culmination of the story of the Bible, and that is the restoration of, uh, of all things. Um, so that's my response to that one. I don't know how good that was. <laughs> okay, so the world is broken. We're not good at fixing it. How do we move towards fixing all those problems you mentioned at the start of the sermon? Or will the world always be broken and there's nothing we can do about it other than rest in the fact that one day uh, Jesus will fix uh, those, uh, those problems? Um, to the last part of that, the world, uh, the world always be broken and there's nothing we can do about it other than rest in the fact that one day Jesus will fix those problems. Um, in some sense, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that, 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 that's true. Um, that's the hope that we await for, is that Jesus is actually going to come and undo uh, all of those things. And so the first part, the world being broken, we're not good at fixing it. How do we move towards fixing all those problems you mentioned at the start of the sermon? So as we wait for Jesus to come again, um, God has actually called us to a restful action, like, it's part of my response to the first, uh, first question here. God has called us to move towards one another and to move towards place and, and to be faithful in those, uh, in those areas. Um, so, here's, so here's actually the start of it. You actually got to get to know people. You actually have to get to know your place in order to move towards like bringing flourishing where you, where you live. Uh, to get real practical, like if you're a physician in here, one of the ways that you actually do this is you are actually literally fighting back against the effects of sin and the fall in the world. Literally, by bringing, by bringing healing. Um, if you're here and you're a school teacher, you're reflecting God's goodness and his glory in creation and reminding us the reality that we're always supposed to be learning. That humanity was made to learn uh, and to grow. If you're here um, and, uh, you know, and let's say, let's say you're, uh, my wife's a librarian, so I think about this all the time. 
she works at one of the public libraries um, in and around Denver. And they, they interface a lot with, uh, with the underserved and the homeless population. Um, and so in a very real sense, one of the things that they do is they actually have a food pantry there in the library. And they can, they can send people out with meals. It's, it's not necessarily the grandiose things. It's the things in the day-to-day sort of, uh, sort of plotting. And we are called... Because we're called to follow Jesus, and Jesus is the one who's bringing flourishing and restoration and everything. We're called to follow him in that. And so everywhere we look and in every conceivable way, we are being called to bring flourishing where we are and in the relationships that we're in and in the places where we work. And in our relationships, what that actually looks like is us recognizing the reality that we're actually tempted towards hard-heartedness. We're tempted towards quick fixes. We actually hurt people, and we need to own that, and we need to repent of that, and we need to turn to Jesus. So that's a, I don't know, that's a little bit of an answer um, to those. I hope those are helpful. And if they're, if they're not, I'm sorry. Um, and, and also, I want to invite you to come talk to me afterwards uh, as well, too. And that's true for, for, for any of you guys. Uh, let me pray for us uh, real quick. Lord, we thank you. Um, that you are a glorious God, that you are the rock of our salvation, that you are great, you are, you are a great king above all gods. In your hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are yours also. The sea is yours, you made it, your hands formed it, and you formed us. You made us and you formed us. And we pray this morning that you would move us more and more toward Jesus, our Savior, who didn't choose a quick fix, but he chose the cross. For us, that we would have life, that we would be free from our sin, free from our lives of anxiety and pride and resentment and a whole host of other things, and free to live in him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.